Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and its Biggs Institute, expanding the horizons of dementia research and advancing comprehensive care. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. Remember that movie, Nebraska? You may not have seen it. It starred Bruce Dern as an elderly man who thinks he's won the lottery. So you told the sheriff that you were walking to Nebraska? That's right. To get my million dollars. And his son, played by Will Forte, has to retrieve him because he keeps trying to walk to Nebraska from Montana. This is Woody Grant. We are now authorized to pay one million dollars. You can tell pretty soon his mind isn't all there. But he's determined to make this trip. You didn't win anything. It's a complete scam. So you got to stop this, okay? I'm running out of time. I actually saw this movie with my dad maybe 10 years ago. I could not imagine at that time that I would ever be the Will Forte character. But eventually, I too had to figure out how to take care of my dad as he got older. This is 24-7, a podcast about what happens when you become your parent's parent. I'm Kitty Isley. I started taking notes and keeping a diary of my experience taking care of my dad as he got older and sicker. The idea came after dad took a really misguided road trip through the Midwest like Bruce Dern's character. It had been just a couple of years since my mom died and my dad's health had declined dramatically. Dad developed congestive heart failure, which led to a lot of problems. Lack of oxygen to his brain for one, and that's brought on a great deal of confusion and memory loss. He was constantly losing things, his glasses, his cell phone, his wallet, and then calling to see if I could help locate them. One time he even lost his car. He forgot which garage he left it in. In the summer of 2017, my dad spent three weeks in the hospital when his heart almost gave out and then another six weeks in a rehab unit, learning to walk again, getting his balance and strength back. But it was still hard for him to accept that things had changed. So when he announced the Monday before Thanksgiving that he was going to fly to Minnesota for a funeral and then fly on to Iowa to spend the holiday with my cousins, alarm bells went off. He said he'd left a phone message for my cousins telling them he was coming. I wasn't even sure they'd gotten it. Before he even got on the plane, he lost his iPhone in the airport security line. He made it to Minnesota for the funeral, but that evening, the night before Thanksgiving, I got a phone call from the friend he was visiting. She said, did I know he had canceled his flight to Iowa and was planning to drive himself there instead? A few years back, that would have been fine. He's made that drive many times, but this time was different. He was different. I called my dad at the hotel where he was staying, and we had a big fight. I told him, you can't do this, and he hung up the phone on me because he was so angry, and that's so unlike him, that has never happened. So Thanksgiving morning, I called back, but he'd already checked out and hit the road. My cousin Julie was waiting for him that day in Iowa. I think you and I talked about what time he left, and I calculated, okay, he should have been here long ago. It's a four and a half hour drive from Minneapolis to Iowa City, and he had been traveling 
six to eight hours, I believe. The problem was he was in a rental car and we didn't, we could have called the state patrol and had them look for him, but we didn't know what rental car he had and you, you weren't able to find that information either. Now the sun was going down and my 81-year-old dad was lost somewhere in between Minneapolis and Iowa City in the snow, on a highway, on a holiday, with no phone. While everyone else is sitting down to turkey and stuffing, my sister and I are scrambling with my cousins and anyone we knew to see if we could locate him. I didn't know what to do. Part of the reason this was so upsetting was that, until pretty recently, my dad had been a political writer in Washington, knocking out stories and editorials and book reviews and running a newsroom. Al Isley is the editor of The Hill and has been so since September 94. Before that, he was the press secretary for Vice President Mondale. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. What's your take? He'd come to Washington as a reporter in 1965, done a stint in politics and policy, and from the mid-90s on, he helped start and then run a political newspaper which was a late career joy for him. So much fun. Caller has a good point. Uh, the budget agreement was a monstrosity. It was full of pork barrel projects. And, uh, he read deeply and widely, and it seemed like everyone in Washington knew him and liked him. He is an honest and decent, friendly guy. He loved covering government and the people who make it work. There are about a half a dozen Senate races that are too close to call, and it will decide control of the Senate. Obviously, Minnesota now has to be... So it's really easy to find tape of him on C-SPAN as a reminder of his talent and his humor, and frankly, how different he is now. His trip should have been pretty much straight south, but somehow at the juncture where he should have continued south, he got turned on an east-west direction, and he was over on the eastern side of Iowa, He was at a 24-hour convenience store, and he called and said that he was lost, and could we help him figure out where to go? All day long, I got a series of texts from my cousin. Al called from a truck stop. Hey, have you heard from your dad? Hey, it's us. We're getting worried. By this point, we are all frantic, but we don't know where he rented the car from, so my cousins can't ask the police to look for it, and the credit card company won't tell me. 10.45 p.m., I got a call from a Target store employee, and she said that he was there and that he had gotten lost and that he was trying to reach family because they were closing in 15 minutes and could someone come help? You know, the story was, we have this gentleman here on a scooter and he's looking for help. He's looking for family members to give him directions. He's on a scooter? Yeah, he was on one of those shopping scooters, like kind of like a rascal. (laughs) He's zipping around a Target on a shopping scooter? And he's drinking like a box of wine, like a sippy box with a little straw, a box of wine. Two of my other cousins drove to the Target to get my dad. We had a really nice visit. My sister was a good host. She brought him to my house and we went out to lunch. I think he flew back Saturday. Yeah, I had to book him a ticket because he, by canceling his ticket to Iowa, he canceled his ticket home on Thanksgiving weekend. How are you feeling? Good. I'm worn out, but I'm good. Yeah. Did they have a good um, uh, helper at uh, O'Hare? They give you a wheelchair? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you took your cane. Good for you. Yeah. You had good service. And he's all confused. Like, why did you fly me back to Baltimore? I'm like, why did you even go on this trip? I got you the only ticket I could get you back to the East Coast. 
on one day's notice. It's so hard because they get mad at you for things that they don't understand. And it's hard to watch their minds change. I try to think of it as if you have a two-year-old and you, you know their minds are not thinking like an adult mind, but it's harder with an adult because a two-year-old, you know, it's going to develop into an adult. Their brain is going to get better. They're going to learn. But with an older person, you know, that's not going to happen. So it's, it's just hard. I got him home from the airport and into bed, and I slept for 13 hours. After that road trip, I knew things were not the same. In a way, it seemed to me he was saying goodbye. He was sort of crisscrossing this farmland and fields where he grew up, just as he'd done on snowy nights in childhood. After the trip, my sister and I talked him into going to an assisted living place in our town just for the winter, so he could have his meals, his physical therapy, have company with the friends he knew, and mostly have someone to watch out for him. We told him he could come back to the house and use that as an office, but at least we'd know he was tucked in at night and got his medicine and was safe. Well, that worked for a few months, but by springtime, he decided he'd had enough. He wanted to move back to our family home in suburban Washington, where I grew up, about a half an hour from where I lived. We couldn't force him to stay. So just a few months into that, another emergency. Outside on the patio, I am frankly exhausted and kind of cranky. Dad fell this week. He took the trash out to the curb and then saw some sticks in the yard and decided he'd move them out to the curb and fell in the yard because the grass is so slippery. He had blood in the crevices of his face, across his forehead, and down his nose. It was like a crossroads or map or a tic-tac-toe. And by the time he came in the house, it had dried, and he didn't even know. When we got to the hospital, it turned out his head was fine, but he had cracked five ribs. I don't know how you crack five ribs. My cousin Julie once again came to the rescue. You got on a plane like two weeks later and came out and just made everything better. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. It was really, it was really nice for me because I thought, I don't know if I'll get to see him again before the end of his life. And I actually really enjoyed that trip. He was always like a second father to all of us. After all that happened, it wasn't looking like he had a lot of time left. I decided it was just easier for me to move in with him, to let him stay in his own home. I'd been reading a lot about death and dying, and the main takeaway was to ask what makes someone happy and what keeps them safe. Dad wanted to eat barbecue on his patio and watch a ball game in his easy chair. So I sublet my apartment and moved into my childhood home. I'm writing this from the place where I learned to tie my shoes and read books and ride a bike. But now the person who taught me has forgotten how to tie his own tie. He hasn't opened a book in two years. I found him stabbing open a can of Diet Coke with a screwdriver because he couldn't work the pull tab with his fingers. For better or worse, I've become a parent to my parent. And the thing is, I'm not alone. There are millions of us in a similar position. One estimate last year 
found that 42 million Americans were taking care of someone over 50 as unpaid caregivers. 42 million of us. And as the baby boom generation grows older, well, you can do the math. So my hope for this podcast, this series, is to bring some of those voices out and give me and maybe you some help and some hope. While we do this hard thing of helping our loved ones get old and die. The University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio is proud to support this podcast. At our Biggs Institute, we're expanding the horizons of Alzheimer's research while striving to support everyone involved in dementia care, from patients and families to healthcare professionals. Benefit from our free online programs and educational resources. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. On our next episode, I ask for a caregiving reality check from an old friend. Every once in a while I got impatient and I'd say, look what you're doing. You know, and then I would feel terribly guilty. And then I'd hate myself. You know, it's hard. I mean, there are so many emotional currents going at once. If you heard something you liked on 24-7, tell a friend. Tell someone who's helping care for your loved one. Tell somebody in your community. I made this show because I felt alone, and I want to help other people not feel that way. The more people who know about 24-7, the better chance we all have to help each other through this. You can find all of our episodes at tpr.org slash 247. 24-7 is produced by me, Kitty Isley, and Ben Henry, with help from Cindy Carpian. The show is a production of Texas Public Radio. Stories like those shared in this podcast inspire the work being done at the Biggs Institute of the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. We are searching for a cure for Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases while providing comprehensive dementia care, online educational resources, and access to clinical trials. Our work offers hope to the more than 55 million people worldwide impacted by dementia. Learn more about a healthier future for aging at uthealthdementia.org.